Hello and welcome to the SSA's podcast. We've got a special edition today uh, covering naloxone. We've got three very special guests um, with us today. Basically, it's uh, Dr. Rebecca McDonald, Dr. Martin Seferinek, and Martin McCusker. We're on location. This is the first podcast we've done where I've been outside of my office, so I'm a little bit giddy with excitement. Um, but Rebecca's joining us uh, via Zoom, so it's a bit mixed method still. Um, so do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Martin, you start. Yeah, I'm uh, Martin McCusker. I'm a client of the uh, Lambert Consortium and I'm part of Lambert Service User Council whose role is to ensure that the voice of Lambert drug users is not only heard by services, by the consortium and by the local, local authority, but you know that voice to, to be used to effect change, in particular when it comes to the planning, commissioning and day-to-day delivering of services. And we do that using various key elements of involvement. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, Martin Seferman. Uh, hello, I'm Martin. Uh, I'm a substance misuse worker at Lambeth Community Drug and Alcohol Service. And uh, part of my role, I also do uh, addiction research, especially on naloxone, and I'm originally from Czech Republic. Fantastic, thank you, Martin. Um, and uh, joining us from Oslo, Rebecca, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, hi everyone, I'm Rebecca McDonald. I'm a researcher at University of Oslo and was based at um, King's College London until very recently. And my research is on improving access to medications for opioid use disorder, including improving access to take on naloxone for community use. Uh, wonderful. Thank you all uh, for joining me uh, today. Well, I mean, actually, I'm joining you because this is your workplace, not mine. Um, but if we start off uh, with naloxone, um, Rebecca, perhaps you're the best person to start off with this. Uh, kind of, how does naloxone work? We're, many people will be aware that it's, uh, it reverses overdose, but can you, can you give us a bit more detail on how naloxone works? Sure, um, I'll, I'll give, it, give it a try. Um, naloxone is a specific um, opioid antagonist, meaning that it can bind to the opioid receptors and block opioid agonists such as heroin from acting. So normally when a person experiences opioid overdose, their breathing is suppressed. And um, if naloxone, the antidote is given in a timely fashion, it can restore breathing and basically prevent fatal outcome of this overdose. Uh, and that, that's after someone has, has used an opiate. So like when, they, when someone has taken already too much of an opiate, this can reverse that effect. Uh, yes, it doesn't necessarily have to be too much of an opioid, but yes, when 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 the breathing is compacted to an extent that um, basically they are at risk of experiencing what we call respiratory depression, um, if you give naloxone quickly enough, it can sort of reverse those effects and um, yeah, can prevent um, fatal outcome of the overdose. So. Uh, Martin, both, Mar- both Martin uh, Seferinek and Martin Mikulski, you, you both train people in administering naloxone. So, so, so in that situation, what does someone need to do in order to kind of practice practically administer naloxone? Well, um, it, it can be really short and simple training. And, you know, most opiate users know the signs of an opiate OD. So that's, it's really important, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the person needs to be unconscious and non-responsive. There's probably going to be signs of drug use around, so there might be a syringe, you know, nearby or still in the person's body. And potentially, like, blue lips, blue fingertips because of lack of oxygen. And, like, a rasping or slow breathing, you know. And then, uh, like, to administer, we have, you know, the Nixoid nasal device. We have the prenoxid uh, injections. So the 
like there are two different ways of administering naloxone. So uh, with the pre-noxad injection, you know, we, we advise people simply to inject it in the thigh muscle with the nasal device, obviously, that goes in the nose. The nasal device, uh, is, is that kind of less intrusive? Do people kind of prefer that, Martin? Well, we, we uh, have just introduced the nasal naloxone recently, a few weeks ago, and uh, we introduced it uh, to... Uh, professionals who work in hostels, which is environment where overdose uh, could be quite common. And uh, these professionals uh, are, to my knowledge, they are usually not uh, like the trained nurses or, or doctors, or they don't have any medical experience. So, so I believe that for them, to have a naloxone, which is, uh, which is not, not, not injectable, uh, is really advantage and really positive yeah. because it's uh, much more easier to use it. And, and and is it is it as effective? I know there's been a lot of research into this. You know, kind of my my assumption, knowing nothing about this, would be that an injection was more effective than a nasal spray. But but that's not necessarily the case. No, because the the injections intramuscular, mm. and uh, like the, one device isn't better than the other. They're just different. You know, um, and they both work just as quickly. You know, so like uh, both the nixide and the prenoxide. You know, manufacturers say wait one to three minutes, but you know, to be honest, that's really long. You know, wait one to two minutes. You know, it's both of them are very fast acting. So, so among so you're talking about the the nasal spray among uh, clinical staff. Um, is is there a preference uh, among people who use drugs for for whether they would might carry a nasal nasal we, like we we've only had the nasal devices in Lambeth uh, over a month now okay our focus has been that nasal devices are ideal for people who as, as Martin said you know they're, they're not nurses so they're not handling needles on a day-to-day basis a lot of people might be you know uncomfortable around syringes so they're ideal for hospital workers and family and friends of drug users Whereas somebody who's an injecting drug user, you know, they have no issues with, with needles, you know. Me personally, I prefer the, the, the pre-noxat injection. Um, the devices are available to whoever wants them, you know. So if, uh, you know, an injecting drug user wants, you know, pre-noxat and nixide, then there's no issue though. So, uh, And we have the ampules. These little ampules and key rings. Okay. So we have a naloxone ampule inside it. This, this was like an, an attempt to get people to carry at least some naloxone on them. So, like, you know, most people were taking the kits, they weren't actually carrying them. So we just thought this would be a way to get people to carry it. And, you know, it's a good way to, you know, people like them. It's a handy way to engage with someone. It's something I want to uh, discuss um, a little bit later, but, you know, the, um, much of the effectiveness of naloxone rise, relies on people carrying it. Yep. There's the medical effectiveness, which is really, really important, but actually it can only be effective if it's present at the right time. Mm. Yeah, well, the majority of people like would keep it at home because they use it at home. Uh, it's a bit of a problem if you're homeless and you, know, you don't have it on you, and that, that, that's an issue. Um, yeah, we, we've always had an issue with people not, not carrying it. Uh, that's their choice. Like when I'm, I, I'm training peers, like I always mention them. Like we've had really, really positive interactions between people and police when they found the naloxone. So uh, this has happened with quite a few people. Where they've been stopped and searched, and uh, it's been a, like a tense situation. But then the naloxone is found, and the whole vibe of the search completely changes. You know, um, 
I'm still, sure they still sell people, you know, you're a scumbag drug user, but once the naloxone is there, it's like, you're now a responsible scumbag drug user, <laughs> which, which changed things, you know. So, you know, I, I always encourage peers during the training, carry the naloxone, it will work in your favour if you're stopped and searched. Yeah. Because, you know, if you're carrying naloxone, that's demonstrating that you give a shit and you care, you know, so. Kind of encouraging to hear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, before we kind of move on to kind of uh, some of your experiences around delivery, what, why is this important now? I mean, I know that certainly in Scotland, drug-related deaths and overdoses are, are at an alarming level, and they're still rise, They're also rising in in England. Yeah, there's certainly a massive problem in the US. Um, uh, are there any indications as to kind of what some of the causes are of those increases in overdoses, and perhaps the role that naloxone might play in addressing this? Well, UK drug-related deaths have topped, you know, Europe's numbers, you know, year on year, and each year they get worse. You know, uh, when you're talking about drug-related deaths, you've got to talk about drug law. You know, um, we need diabolpine prescribing in the UK. You know, it needs to be available across across the UK. You know, that will knock a lot of drug, you know, accidental ODs on the head, because people know exactly what they're getting. Naloxone's great, but it's just part of the picture when it comes to drug-related deaths. And is there any data? I mean, Rebecca, perhaps you you're aware of this. Is there any data about the uh, how many overdoses um, naloxone uh, might have prevented in, in the UK? I think there is the estimate that two thirds of overdose could, overdoses could be prevented, but of course, this very much relies on people not using on their own, which is becoming you know increasingly an issue. That however much naloxone you are distributing, if people continue to use on their own, those overdoses cannot be witnessed. Therefore, nobody can intervene in an emergency. So much of the training, you know, is focused on trying to educate people not to use on their own. And uh, obviously the idea of drug consumption room also, drug consumption rooms also goes towards that to encourage people not to be on their own when they inject to always have the safety measure of naloxone on site. So, so that, that kind of brings us on to that, that point of, uh, of, of delivery. It's, it's one of the key aspects of um, of naloxone is that it's it's not something you can self-administer because of the, the, the nature of the situation in which it needs to be administered. So, uh, Martin, is this something that you cover when you train people in, in using naloxone? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, because, yeah, as you said, uh, as you said, you need to have, uh, I believe, uh, two people yeah, to, to successfully administer naloxone. One is uh, the person who overdosed and uh, may die, and the second one is the person who has a naloxone and is willing to use it and, he, and has the confidence, has the skills to use, to use uh, naloxone. So, so uh, it's from my point of view, it's not only about the distribution of the naloxone, but as well about providing the training and to show to show uh, our clients how the naloxone injection uh, or nasal naloxone, how it looks like and how to use it effectively. And as we said before, yeah, to recognize to recognize the science of overdose and. Uh, to use the naloxone effectively, and uh, always we say clients that it is important to call call ambulance. And uh, you mentioned before about kind of giving training to health professionals. So pre- presumably you, you give training to people who use drugs when you when you give that maybe on a one to one basis. 
And you also do training for kind of wider health professionals, and has that started to extend to you know police or, or other people who engage with the public? What what kind of people do you train? I suppose. Well, to my knowledge, uh, at uh, our service we trained uh, people who work in hostels, uh, in hostels, and I'm not sure if we trained. Did we train any other professionals? Just day centres. Um, like it, 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 the the training's available for anybody who wants it. Anybody who you know potentially may come across an OPD. You know, you mentioned the police. Um, we we the, the Met Police have all been briefed. They've had a briefing on naloxone, so every single one of them knows what naloxone is. You know that it has no monetary value. That you can't get high from it. So you know if you come across somebody with it, it you know it's theirs. It's their medication. You know. Uh, so th there shouldn't be an issue, but um, for as uh, as far as say, say police being trained and then carrying it, you know that comes out of their crime budget. So you know that's down to the individual um, police operational area or whatever. You know they got to decide. But I know yeah. some of them, some of them are up in the north, but uh, in London, no. Just thinking that when we are talking about different different uh, groups of people who may use uh, naloxone, I think it is important to mention as well uh, parents or family members. Okay. So, which uh, so these are people who usually do not uh, use drugs but are in contact with their children, for example, who may use drug uh, drugs. And I had uh, several parents uh, and I trained them how to use how to use naloxone uh, and uh, reverse the overdose. Is that something that, that families have found uh, reassuring or has that been quite a difficult conversation? I think I think I think it wasn't like a difficult conversation I think I think from my point of view I think that maybe a, a relief is like the too strong yeah, but I think they were like uh, grateful or uh, they were you know that they have some power to do yeah. something if emergency happened yeah so uh, you always call the ambulance but then you know you are waiting for ambulance and you are counting the minutes or seconds yeah, yeah. but if you have an naloxone you can do something more yeah and I think I think for these parents it was important to know that this is what they can do that they can save save the life of, of, of uh, the person of their child. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And, and what are some of the other? Are there any kind of common uh, myths that you have to kind of explain to them again when you're training people? Well, to for drug users, yeah, and um, uh, there's several that people. You know, I I have friends that swear like a salt water injection will reverse an OBD. So we think that comes from you know when you're in hospital and you have like a drip put in. And um, people will swear, you know, you walk the person around, you know, um, in a cold bath. Um, I, and I think different countries have, have got different things because I know in, in Spain, oh no, no, in, in I think it's Bulgaria, I've seen a documentary and it's like pulling the tongue out of the mouth will stop the person from ODM. Like, you know, all of them are nonsense, mm. you know, because they can't do what naloxone does, which is, you know, temporary block the, the opiates from sitting on the receptors. But um, yeah, people would still swear by it. That, you know, I, I think I remember someone I, I, when I attended similar training, just kind of really just kind of um, 
emphasizing that an overdose is an overdose is an overdose. If you mm. can wake someone up, it wasn't an overdose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't a fatal yeah. overdose. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, the, the cool thing with naloxone is it's a one-trick pony. If you get it wrong, if it's not an opiate OD, you're not doing any harm. Okay. You know, so it, it only works on opiates. If there's no opiates in that person's system, it's something else that happened to them, you know. Mm-hmm. You're not doing them any harm. Okay. And legally, you're covered. Anybody could administer naloxone for the purpose of saving a life. Whether it's your naloxone, whether you're being trained, whatever, you're covered. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's a really important thing, I think, with the anxieties that people might yeah, have. Yeah, about. Uh, like, that, and, and I think the government uh, changed the law in particular to, to, to reassure people, like in particular like hostel workers and day centre workers who, who were a bit unsure at the beginning, you know, um, when, we, when we first started to take home naloxone, that if they got it wrong, they're going to be, you know, in some sort of trouble. But uh, most countries have it. Like I think in, in Canada, it's the helpful stranger law. In France, it's the Good Samaritan law. You know, so it's basically reassuring people: look, you're not going to be in any, any trouble, and you're not going to do any harm if it's not an opioid OD, and, and nothing's going to happen. So that brings us on to the next point. There was there was some recent research, and Rebecca, perhaps you can talk to this. Um, there was some recent research into uh, why, because not everyone wants to carry naloxone. I mean, even within uh, people who use drugs. Um, themselves, not everyone wants to. Um, so what, can you talk through some of the latest research on that and some of the reasons why, why people might not want to carry naloxone? Sure. So one of the things that we found out um, in, in a study at Lorraine Udhouse and um, other European sites was that um, on average, the carriage rate of naloxone was about one in five people were only carrying their naloxone. And as Martin pointed out, that may not be perhaps so important because if people have naloxone where they need it at home, maybe that's okay. Maybe it doesn't matter so much if they're carrying it on the day of the survey. But still it's, you know, it's quite shocking in a way if you think of it as an intervention that is supposed to benefit people in the community that four out of five kits may not be available on site. So that led us to ask more um, about um, what are the reasons why people may not want naloxone in the first place? And um, there have been some qualitative studies um, in North America around this. Um, and this was mostly done in uh, groups who were um, abstinent. So some people considered naloxone to be a trigger for opiate use and therefore may not want to carry it. And um, I suppose that's also a problem with um, the recommendation to co-prescribe naloxone uh, to people who are in receipt of long-term high-dose opioid prescriptions for for pain, for instance, where in the U.S., despite this recommendation, uh, only about one in 40 episodes of uh, opioid prescribing actually involve a co-prescription. And perhaps there is this need to normalize naloxone in that sense to make it less about injecting drug use or sort of something that's considered an indicator of risky behavior, but actually an essential safety measure um, that should be given that no matter what, not necessarily for the person themselves, but really for them to intervene in an emergency in the community. Um, So we're currently looking at um, studying in more detail the reasons as to why people decline the offer of naloxone and um, hope to be able to report on that in more detail soon. And that could then hopefully also inform how we pitch take on naloxone um, at, for people who are currently receiving methadone or buprenorphine treatment 
for also those who are receiving um, pain medications long-term and might be at risk of overdosing themselves, even though they may not recognize themselves as being risk, uh, risky opioid users in that sense. Is that something that you recognize when distributing naloxone? Are there people who are un unwilling to, to carry it for like those reasons, I think, uh, around triggering or... or, or no, I like... It. Um, Rebecca mentioned it was an abstinent group, so I'm, I'm sure you get a very different answer from a non-abstinent group. And the reason I hear most most of the time is I use alone, you know, so there's no point in me having it. You know, unfortunately, um, a lot of opiate users, you know, uh, OD is seen as part of the job description. It's something that happens a lot and, you know, it's... That's just the way they see it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd say the most the, the most common answer is I use alone. There's no point in me having it. That's interesting. So, so to a to a certain sense, uh, for it to be effective, it needs to kind of run along other other measures such as safer injecting practices, like not injecting alone, and uh, I'm kind of. Well, yeah, in the in the UK, with the you know the opiate using community is is you know very much older. Um, so, you know, people are kind of set in their ways now and, you know, like me, I used to use, I reduce a lot, you know, yeah, I train people, you know, around safer injecting and using the locks and um, So, yeah, I, I, I don't know how we can turn that around. You know, it'd be great to have the naloxone being seen just like an EpiPen or something, you know, something just really normal like that, that, you know, um, uh, our community is affected by opioid OD, we should, you know, we should carry naloxone. Um, so, so, maintaining uh, or staying on the kind of research uh, area for a moment, um, uh, again, I think Rebecca, you were involved in this, perhaps you were Martin, there was some recent research by, there was a randomised control trial with ambulance crews. Um, yeah, I was not involved <laughs> personally, um, but this was led by my uh, colleague Arna Spielberg, um, who conducted a um, randomised trial that was actually a um, double dummy study. So this was a comparison um, of uh, the nasal spray compared to um, regular 0.8 milligram naloxone intramuscular injection. And uh, the main endpoint was uh, the return to normal breathing um, at um, at least 10 breaths per minute within 10 minutes. And um, the results were that um, the intranasal spray was slightly less efficient than the intramuscular naloxone. So um, um, in a direct head-to-head -head comparison, 80% um, of participants um, restored or returned to normal breathing after the intranasal naloxone administration after one dose um, and had a few mild adverse reactions. But still, I think these findings, you know, it's a very clean study design and the findings are quite exciting because it actually does show that um, as uh, Martin highlighted earlier, you know, this is very much about saving time until the ambulance arrives. And um, I think in the UK, the average response times for NHS ambulances are meant to be eight minutes. So, you know, if you think that um, on average, um, a person after using heroin in, in case of an overdose may only survive for 20 to 30 minutes, that's really the window of intervention that we're aiming for. So um, if... Um, you know, the, the nasal priority reverses, um, let's say, 80% of overdoses. It's definitely a good thing 
to have um, and you know it really saves time but before the ambulance arrives who, who can then handle over with cl proper clinical care um, but you know having said that I think it's very much um, as we discussed earlier both the intramuscular injection and the intranasal spray work and are you know efficacious so um, in that sense it's very much about also yeah making sure that naloxone goes to the people who are most likely to use it. Um, and um, so we need to make sure to reach out to people who perhaps are less involved with services and um, you know, distrib distribution via homeless shelters, for instance, um, I think is very much to be encouraged or street outreach, mail delivery. Um, I know Martin's been involved in some of the street outreach and those, I think, efforts are very important just to make sure that naloxone is available in places where it's needed. Uh, Martin, you've, you've also been researching this area for some time. Um, which kind of, what kind of approaches has your, has your research focused on? Well, uh, I did in the, in the collaboration with the addictions department at uh, King's College, I did a survey, I did surveys on uh, uh, Naloxone uh, here at our treatment service. Uh, one one of the surveys was on preferen preferences of different naloxone devices. Uh, another another survey was what was it, Rebecca? <laughs> 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 there was there was one one survey one survey was on the keyring keyring naloxone okay. when we when we introduced uh, when we introduced this uh, innovative naloxone device and we wanted to know what the reaction will be if people will find it useful if people will be willing to carry it if they will have a confidence to uh, use the ampule uh, to use the ampule and administer the naloxone, and that was that was specifically for uh, only for clients who are injecting. Yeah. It was not available to anyone else, only to current injectors. And the most recent uh, naloxone survey uh, I'm doing at the moment is uh, basically follow-up, follow-up, six months follow-up study when uh, we, uh, when we, uh, when from, from the point of when the naloxone was issued, so, and clients are monitored if they, if they witnessed uh, overdose and if they used uh, naloxone and uh, so we do some, we collect some quantitative data with the questionnaires and as well uh, we do some interviews and collect qualitative data on naloxone and how the naloxone is used by our clients. It's, it's, one, of the, it's one of the fascinating things, like just, I mean, everything in this area is, is that you have what's, what seems like a fairly straightforward uh, intervention. You know, if someone's overdosing, you give them naloxone and it stops them overdosing or reverses that overdose. And yet there's so much complexity in it, like who carries it, why they carry it, what situations that uh, they might use drugs, um, families, uh, national policies, ambulance drivers, the amount of time uh, and those windows. And actually, actually the, the efficacy of, of such a you know, nominally simple mm -hmm. intervention is reliant on so many other factors. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Martin, before, before we started recording, you were talking about um, some of the work you used to do with outreach. Um, yeah, so... Um like one of the when we first 
started doing the take home naloxone, you know, it was really important to, to get it into the hands of drug users who weren't using services. So we uh, started to um, do outreach uh, in Brixton where uh, I would approach, you know, guys that I, I'm, I, I'm well known in the opiate using community in, in, in the borough and I know lots of opiate users, I know lots of opiate users who aren't accident services. So um, it was very easy for me to approach them and, uh, you know, try and quickly train them up and get them to carry naloxone. But, you know, one of the issues that come up straight away, because a lot of these guys were in prominent positions, you know, begging, um, they weren't comfortable with me pulling out a, a, a kit with a syringe in it because passers-by would think, oh, obviously there's something dodgy going on there. They, you know, passers-by would have no idea this is a life-saving drug. Um, so uh, then I started to give people like a few quid to come around the corner with me really quickly and I'll quickly demonstrate, you know, how to, you know, put it together and, and administer it. And that worked great at the beginning, but um, then word got around Brixton, you know, uh, I was the guy with money, so I got into a couple of sticky situations, so I had to knock that in the head. But now we've got the nasal devices, that changes everything, because there would be no issue with me pulling out a nasal device, people walking by will have no idea what it is, so uh, we're going to restart the outreach now. Once... Because we've only had the nasal devices uh, just over a month now, and our focus has been on getting it into, the, uh, in particular, into the hostels. Because we had a, um, a synthetic opioid appear in Lambeth in, in August, and we had a few deaths. I think there was like twenty deaths across England. Isonetazine, I think it was called something like that. A super strong synthetic opioid, and uh, so you know, we 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 we've been doing a big push to train every single hostel worker in the borough you know, get the nasal devices into the borough and that's where our focus has been this last this last few months. And um, but once that's done then, you know, I can restart the outreach again, which will be good. Um, that's fantastic. I mean one of the things that, that kind of I saw in the news recently was because um, there's, there's been a lot about the um, US opioid epidemic. Mm. There was that big report out I think last week, uh, led by Keith Humphreys. Um uh, important reading for anyone interested in this area. Um, but one of the things that's happening there in the US is that the naloxone in some places is starting to be prescribed alongside those opioid medications, those painkilling medications. And it, it, was, it took me a while to kind of, um, kind of process that. I've always, the setting for naloxone distribution has always been you know, places like Lorraine Cure House uh, treatment services. Um, and it took, yeah, it took me a while to kind of um, to, to refocus to, to GP saying, right, I'm going to prescribe you some oxycodone for your, uh, for your back pain and here's some naloxone as well because, because of that opioid epidemic. Mm. I mean, is, is that something that we're seeing in the UK at all or is, I, or is that a very different situation? I, yeah, I don't think you can compare the US to the UK because depending on where you are in the US, the, the laws are completely different around things like needle exchanges, you know, around acceptance of, you know, substitute prescribing. Um, I, I know in places that, you know, uh, if, you, if you call an ambulance for an opioid OD, you can be arrested. Um, so I, I think it's very, very different. It's, it's not really fair to, to compare them, you know. Um, there's some good stuff going on in the US, but I think the majority of it is, I think they're quite backward, you know. Uh, like, the UK isn't, is, is also backward, I think, you know, but uh, it's a little bit ahead, I think, of the US. I think Canadians are doing some good stuff. 
there's been quite a, quite a few kind of innovative things that have come out of the kind of you know, the, the coronavirus or COVID uh, pandemic with um, uh, people kind of spotting each other via Zoom. Um, and I know that there were some vending machines launched with needle exchange services in the lock zone up to New York City, but more in Canada. Um, Martin, you've done quite a lot of work with naloxone in, in, in Prague um, in, and in the Czech Prague and in the Czech in Prague in the Czech Republic. Um, how do things differ uh, in the Czech Republic to, to say the UK and the US? Uh, well, uh, Czech Republic, uh, in terms of the drug use, is uh, I think very interesting country because in Czech Republic the major problem is uh, uh, methamphetamine uh, which is uh, which is very different compared to compared to the UK for example and uh, in the Czech Republic people who use uh, opioids are in relative is uh, the people who are in relative relatively minority compared to people who use methamphetamine okay and uh, we did we did some we did a survey in three different treatment centers in Prague uh, at the time when naloxone was not available to uh, people who use drugs and uh, we we did a survey and we asked the clients uh, if they have if they ever overdosed if they witnessed overdose and if they would be willing to carry and use a naloxone, if it would be available, and uh, the, the the results results were, I think, really encouraging and positive. I mean, positive was that that people uh, were really interested uh, in naloxone. They ma majority of them they expressed uh, they expressed that they would like to have it, if it would be available. Uh, what was not so positive was that uh, majority of people had experience with overdose or, uh, and or they saw overdose as well. So, so, so our survey showed or confirmed uh, that there is a high need of naloxone. Uh, uh, in in Czech Republic, and I think what is what is really encouraging and positive is that that after we did after we did the survey, uh, they started distributing uh, naloxone in Czech Republic. I'm not saying that it was because of our survey, <laughs> which would be which would, <laughs> which would be obviously the best outcome. But but yeah, but uh, but situation is changing yeah, in Czech Republic as well. So so it looks like that naloxone is now available to people who use drugs. You would think that there'd be loads of opiates in in Czechoslovakia, no, you know, just no. the, where it is on the map with Afghanistan. No, 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 no. No, we have my majority majority of clients uh, or drug users are using methamphetamine. Methamphetamine, which is home produced, so it's not it's yeah, not right, brought from yeah. other countries, but it is homemade. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, you touched on something there, which I know has been uh, again has been some kind of has been some research research on this, but the uh, the impact that witnessing an overdose can have on people, you know. 
a lot of the figures um, that people talk about with overdose are the absolute figures, the number of, the number of deaths per year, and, and obviously that's that's a really uh, really important outcome. But but actually the the kind of damage that masks the number of people who who are affected by overdose, and uh, you know, and families and people who witness overdose, and and, and so on. Um, I'd, I'd say it, it would be awful, well it must be awful for a family member to, to, to witness an OD, but for opiate users, be honest, it's, it's no big deal, it really isn't. You know, it's a big deal if the person dies, but um, if it's an OD and, you know, whether you've got naloxone or they come around themselves just naturally, then, you know, it's, it's just something that happens, you know. Uh, and that, like... <laughs> Services never get to hear, um, you know, they never really get to hear success stories with naloxone because, you know, it works fine, it's no big deal, you know, you're not going to mention it to your key worker or whatever, you know. If somebody dies, then you would mention that. Yeah. You know, so it, as you said earlier, you know, it's, it's, OD is just seen as part of the job description. I'm just thinking about the the situation which you mentioned before, the situation when we had um, uh, synthetic opioids mm -hmm. in, in Lambeth, which was about six months ago. And I remember that there was a period, maybe, I don't know, three, three weeks, four weeks, when, when this synthetic opioid was available on the, on the black market. And there were uh, and many of our clients, they reported uh, that they witnessed overdose or that they had overdose because of the synthetic opioids. And there was a period of maybe three or four weeks when almost on daily basis we, we had the people on the phone or who were coming to the service and they were very like the stressed and worried because they witnessed the overdose and they were coming here like in the crisis and they were crying and uh, it was it was really visible how how uh, strong impact yeah. it had on them and that did freak a lot of people yeah yeah yeah, yeah. exactly exactly and but but what was really interesting i think or positive yeah these people, most of them, they already had the naloxone uh, because most of our clients, they have naloxone at home. Yeah. But uh, during, during this, this crisis, there was almost like the queue outside mm. yeah, when people were coming here, especially for the naloxone. And uh, we gave out like two, three, four naloxone to one person because he or she said, I need it for my other friends who do not come here, but they are injecting and that they may need it. And it, we, I, I think during that, I don't have the numbers yet, but I think during that specific three or four weeks yeah. period, I think the num numbers of the naloxone, which we distributed, went... Yeah. Up the roof, yeah, or must be. Or just my impression. This is how I uh, how I yeah. remember it. Yeah, that it was really that the demand from the clients was so absolutely like powerful. Yeah, it, it, it did freak a lot of people out. That synthetic yeah. opiate really did. Which I think, which is really really interesting thing yeah, from the point of the behavior. Yeah, that you know these clients, or they they know that they may die or that their friend 
can die or someone who they know may die but they were coming here and they were saying I need naloxone I need more naloxone because the risk is there we know that the, that the synthetic opioid is there and if I see if I see overdose I want to use it I want to use naloxone which I think is really good experience or strong experience yet to see to see that that people are willing to use naloxone. So, to kind of wrap things up, I guess individually, what would uh, what would you, uh, Rebecca, starting with you, what, what's the kind of next steps for naloxone? And I guess uh, from research and perhaps from your perspective, what what are the next things that you would like to see around this? Um, I think one of the things we probably want to look at is sort of you know looking more at ways to expand naloxone access um, through non-traditional routes. And some of the foundations for, for that were probably laid during COVID when the services weren't necessarily opened or for regular hours. So uh, things such as mail delivery of naloxone was used more widely or the provision of multiple kits uh, per, per person. Um, the, yeah. So, you know, to what extent can, can those existing or new routes of distribution actually expand access. And um, also, I think we need to get a better understanding of what coverage level of naloxone in a community is needed to really bring down mortality rates. Um, So I think those are, you know, areas to look at. Um, Actually, just today or a few days, no, three days ago, there was an announcement that um, on the back of the Police Scotland um, expanding naloxone provision to, I think it's 14,000 person force. Um, The Met Police in London is now also looking into um, providing police among um, with with naloxone nasal spray. Um, And I think those are all positive efforts. Um, But again, um, you know, the question is how can we best reach people who are most likely to witness overdose and make sure that naloxone remains accessible to to, to people and uh, work on sort of reducing stigma related to naloxone use. Fantastic, absolutely. Stigma plays a massive part in um, in all things uh, um, drug treatment related um, and and this is no exception. Um, uh, Martin, uh, what would you like to see as as the next steps? Well, like one thing that concerns me uh, a lot is um, the amount of um, benzos that we're now seeing mixed with opiates. Um, it, it's it, it seems to be on the rise. There seems to be more and more benzos being added. So when when people are reversing an OD, the person's coming back round, but they're not coming round as much as you would like to come round because the benzos are still depressing the breathing. You know, and I remember having a conversation with um, somebody from Martindale who. Uh, made prenoxide, I think they call epiform now. And I remember having a, a chat with them years ago, uh, and they were telling me that they were working on um, an injection that can reverse both opiates and benzos. So I don't know how far down the road they are with that, but you know that would be a game changer. It really would, because you know most opiate fatalities have a mix. You know, it's very rarely somebody just dies from heroin. You know, there's a mix of benzos, alcohol, whatever, all depressants, they're all walking against the person's breathing. But yeah, uh, I think if, if they have been successful or, or are going to be successful with that injection, I think that would be, that would be brilliant. 
Uh, just want to mention quickly uh, drug law and drug policy again. You know, you can't talk about drug-related deaths, you can't talk about naloxone without talking about, you know, drug law, drug policy. You know, it, it, it needs to change. Drug users need access to a safe supply. You know, that will knock so many accidental ODs on the head, you know. And it, it will work in partnership with naloxone. You know, naloxone's great, but it's just part of the picture. Drug law and drug policy plays a massive part. And we are kind of a bit backward when it comes to uh, drug law in particular in this country. Um, uh, Martin, um, what would you like to see? I mean, what would be the next steps for you? Well, I'm, I'm thinking uh, about opportunities related to the nasal, nasal naloxone and nasal spray, uh, which we already mentioned that we trained staff in the hostel. Uh, Rebecca, Rebecca mentioned availab availability of naloxone to police officers and uh, fire brigade and other services. Now I'm thinking, uh, I do, I actually not sure where the overdoses uh, happened. Yeah, maybe it's just my picture. Yeah, but uh, my picture that that that. Uh, Naloxone should be nasal naloxone maybe should be available in public public places where where I think overdose may happen like 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 the railway stations or uh, shopping centers or libraries in the in the cities where are places where the drugs can be used and uh, yeah, and anyway, I, I think yeah. there is a, like the massive potential for the for the naloxone, yeah. especially for the one for the one which is not injectable, yeah, like the nasal spray. Yeah, anywhere like where there's public toilets is yeah. potentially somewhere to use, uh, or, or or car park stairwells, places like that. You know? A bit like kind of defibrillators. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I could, because they have no monetary, you know, a nasal device has no monetary value. You know, it's. All it does is, you know, temporary block receptors. That's it. That's its one. It, it, it's one thing. So it's not something that people would take and can sell on, or somebody can get high from it, or you know, any of that. So, yeah, it, it needs to be available in much, 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 much more places. But the focus should always be first and foremost on drug users and their family and friends. Um, I think. I mean, I think the vending machines, very, which have been, are now. I think you mentioned there. Some have been introduced in Canada for. Um, prisoners on release. Um, New York City is um, introducing 10 vending machines for naloxone and possibly also other harm reduction supply in neighborhoods that are underserved by pharmacies and particularly neighborhoods um, with um, um, yeah, people of, of color as, as residents who are now predominantly dying of overdose in the U.S. So it's very much a way to get naloxone to people who are underserved. And I think, you know, those sort of new initiatives really deserve to be evaluated and um uh, yeah it might be you know one venue in addition to others such as libraries or you know coffee shops or whatnot uh, taxis where naloxone could be sort of pre-supplied in certain um yeah neighborhood venues um to remove the barrier of people having to access services um yeah so like in if you're listening to this and you, you want to access naloxone, is this a case, I mean, do you go to your pharmacist, do you go to your local uh, well, drug treatment in, service? In Lambeth, or in, in the UK, it'll be your local drug treatment service. Like we are, there, there will be in Lambeth, there will be some pharmacies um, giving out their nasal devices, but uh, not all. But uh, for anybody in the UK, yeah, just go to ring up your, your local um, drug and alcohol service and 
there shouldn't be an issue. If there is an issue, then you need to contact your local authority or complain somewhere, you know, locally. Because, you know, all drug and alcohol services should be, should be providing naloxone. Um, okay, well, that's been um, absolutely fantastic. It's been uh, wonderful talking to you. Uh, uh, Martin McCusco, Martin Seferinek, uh, Rebecca McDonald, thank you all so much for your time. No problems. Thank Thanks you. for inviting us. <laughs>